Morning, church. Did you all make it through the snow? You did. You're here. Way to go. Good job. Hey, uh, <laughs> it's funny. You know, I've been in, it was in Cincinnati for like seven years. People tend to freak out when there's snow there. You guys are just seasoned veterans at this whole snow thing. Um, my name is Brandon. I'm the senior pastor here. If you uh, are a new guest with us, I want to say a special welcome to you. Um, a, a few weeks ago in a staff meeting, I asked our staff a, uh, a really important question. I asked them what their uh, favorite, if they looked it back at their whole life, their favorite summer. What was their favorite summer? And I asked them to tell me about it. I learned a lot about them. You know, it says a lot about what you, what you remember and what you're interested in when you talk about something uh, that, you, that you hold as a dear memory. Uh, when it came time for me to share my uh, favorite summer, I told them about uh, when I was 14, uh, the summer when I was 14. And leading up to the summer, I'm gonna give you the backstory of this. Uh, my, my dad and I, we, I grew up going to Bearfield Speedway. Anybody go there? You like going to the races? Cool, maybe we can all go. It'd be fun. Um, and, and so we, we went to that, and, and one year they decided to open up a new racing class. And this was a low bar kind of thing. They call it the front wheel drive class because it was, you know, race cars with front wheel drive. And so the bar was very low. It wasn't like thousands of dollars, well, it was probably maybe thousands or something like that, but it was, much, it was much cheaper than building from scratch a like stock car race car. Okay, so we decided we would do this. Uh, he decided, and I was just part of it, but I was there to help. And so he found this uh, Chevy Cavalier. If you can imagine this, we're going to turn a Chevy Cavalier into a race car, okay? Uh, he found a Chevy car Cavalier, and we paid like $80 for it. I'm not even exaggerating. It might have been 81 They might have worked us through that. Uh, but, you know, this was a car that was destined for its death soon. But we, we grabbed this Cavalier, and we started to transform this car into a race car. We gutted everything inside of it. We took out all of the seats except for the driver's seat. And we took out every little extra little piece. There's a ton of stuff inside your car if you start ripping apart. I don't recommend it unless you know how to put it back together and all that. But uh, we were taking out everything, you know, just trying to get it to, to where it's light. Because you, you're, if you're lighter, you go faster. And we started wrenching on the engine, doing some minor modifications. And we started, to, we got a roll cage um, installed. You know, a Chevy Cavalier with a roll cage. <laughs> Can it even go that fast to roll? I don't even know. Uh, but what we did that, and we got a five-point harness, uh, you know, installed on the driver's side uh, seat, and, and it was just, it was ready. And so we get to opening weekend of Bearfield Speedway, and I am just, as a 14-year-old kid, I'm in the pits. I'm in the back of where everything happens. And it's not exactly like NASCAR pits, but, you know, uh, we didn't get to go in there rah, 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 and we're, we're off to the races. It's kind of how I change diapers, uh, you know. <laughs> but um, so we did that and, and the, the summer was great. It was amazing. It was, like one of, it, it was really like one of my favorite summers growing up because at the end of that summer, I also, as a 14-year-old kid, couldn't, can't drive on the road, but they let me drive a race car in a race and I did pretty well and it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so 14-year-olds, hey, you know, save up your pennies. Maybe you can uh, get a race car and your parents are going to kill me later. <laughs> but it made me think about that because like when I, when we looked at that Chevy Cavalier, we looked at that knowing that we were going to spend $80, but then we were going to spend a lot more transforming that car into a race car. Anybody else who would have looked at that car on the classifieds of Fort Wayne Journal Gazette would have said, uh, you know, it probably needs some minor tweaks and, you know, get it running optimally for just driving down the street. They would have just looked at it and see that it would need some improvements, some changes. 
But we looked at it and we saw something different. We saw that it needed a transformation. It needed the transformation. It needed to be completely different for what we wanted it for. And that's what we did. We transformed that Chevy Cavalier into a race car. But that got me thinking too, because um, in our world, we live in uh, a, a very like Judeo-Christian value kind of moralistic culture, okay? Where like, if you do the, good, do the right things, no one's gonna bother you, okay? You're not gonna go to jail if you don't break the law, typically. Um, but we live in this culture and, and we all are a part of this. And in the church, I don't know about you, I'm just gonna speak from my own experience and, and you're gonna just be able to peer into my heart, okay? Uh, so buckle up, five-point harness. Um, I don't know about you, but there are t- typically times in my life where I'm around people, maybe it's a family member or a friend or someone I don't know, and, th- and they don't behave the way I think they should behave. And I tend to think if they would just do this, it would be okay. I would just, like, if you need to just stop doing this in your life, it would be just fine. Like, you're just getting in your own way. If you would just, if you would just honor God with your life, it would be fine. I don't know about you, but sometimes we can fall into the trap of expecting people to behave morally without the power of Jesus for them to actually be infused in them to actually do that. We can look at people who need Jesus and we then present to them a plan of moral improvement instead of a life-changing relationship with Jesus, the only one who can transform their lives. Any ever, anyone ever been there? You ever done that? I just admitted in front of all of you that I've done that. Uh, anybody else? Because I tend to, to go there. Like I just, you can see their actions. You can see their uh, behaviors. And it's easy for us to focus on that. But I think when we do that, we're focusing only on the symptoms and we're never getting down to the underlying problem in their lives and in our lives as well. See, I'm convinced that in our moralistic culture, we can focus too much on people's behavior and not enough on what they really need. Not enough of what they really need. When, before I knew Jesus, here's the thing. People, there were well-meaning, uh, you know, authors and gurus and just well-meaning people in my life who would have been happy with convincing me that all I needed was a paint job and some crow cap spinners, you know, just to add to my car if that's my life. That if it just makes some little improvements, they'd be happy with that. But you know what? I found out the fact that I needed much more than that because I didn't just need to make some changes in my life. I needed to experience transformation in my life. And I think that's what Jesus showed us. Jesus showed us this, that no matter what someone looks like, no matter if they look good on the outside, any kind of measuring stick you can put on that, they need the same thing that someone else who doesn't look like they've got life figured out, who looks like they're struggling, they, the people who look good, the people who don't look good, they all need the same thing. The murderer needs the same thing that the liar does. The same thing. The abuser needs the same thing the gossiper needs. The same thing. We're all on a level playing field. We are all sinners. No matter how big or how small we may think someone's sin is, no matter how good we think they are of a person, uh, we all need the very same thing. We all need a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, I hope that we can see ourselves in a little bit more clear way. And I hope that through that, we can also see other people around us in a very much more clear way than we have before because this is a difficult thing. We have to remind ourselves of this constantly that no matter what someone looks like on the outside, They need the very same thing I do 
And, and for all of us, like we know all of our own secrets. We know how messed up we are. But you know what? Everyone else is on the same playing field. So we've been, we started this series, Mission Advance, last week. And we're looking at, we're just asking the question, why do we exist as a church? What are we called to? What is our mission? What are we, if we're going to move forward, what does that look like? And so we, we looked at our, our mission statement that the, the transition team re-clarified and restated. And this is what it says. The mission of First Church of Christ is to lead generations into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We talked about leading generations to Jesus last week. Today we're going to be talking about life-changing, a life-changing relationship with Jesus, leading people to life change through Jesus. So if you have a Bible, go ahead, uh, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, if you, you can use your, your phone, version app, I'm going to assume you are on the Bible. If you're on Facebook, that's between you and God, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse, verse 14. This is what the Apostle Paul says to this church in Corinth. This is what he says. For the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. For the love of Christ compels us. That word compels is an interesting word because it's not just like uh, it's an encouraging word or this is what we should do or ought to do. When Paul's saying that, he's saying the love of Christ is what controls him. Like that's the thing that controls every part of his life. It's like that's his guardrail. That's his GPS that tells him where he's supposed to go. That's, he's confined by the love of Christ. He's controlled by the love of Christ. He's compelled by that love. He's compelled by that love because they reached this conclusion. Uh, and that conclusion is this. He reached a conclusion that says, if one died for all, that's Jesus, he died for all, then all died. And he, he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. So the idea that Jesus died for all, that's a, a theological word, is substitutionary atonement. In other words, he took your place. The place he was on at the cross that's, that's where we should have been. But he took our place and paid for our debt so that we could have life in him. So he died for all. Now we all know that even though he died for all, all aren't going to be following him. But in a sense, since he died for all, we all have access to that death. Which that's a good news death because then you can die to your old self and be brought up in the resurrection of Jesus in a new life. Uh, so in a sense, there's, he died for all. All have the opportunity to experience that death, which is a good thing. And so when you, when you experience in that death, then you are given new life, then what do you live for? Your life going forward. Because Jesus doesn't, doesn't just save us and bring us up to heaven, right? If, if that was the news, then we, some of us, we'd be in trouble, <laughs> you know? We're left behind. But he says, if one died for all, then when we experience that, when we live, we're supposed to live for him. Not for ourselves, not for anyone else. We're supposed to live for him because living for ourselves results in sin and separation from God every time. But living for Jesus results in life and relationship with God every time. He's saying he's controlled by this reality, by the, by the fact that all of us, all of us have a desperate, eternal, infinite need for healing. 
He's control. Like that's what that's what gets him up in in the morning. That's what that's what compels him to go and do what he does. That's what that's what compels him to have gospel-centered conversations with people who need the gospel. That's what compels him to go to faraway lands and plant churches. That's what's compelling him to write this letter to him. And this church was not nice to Paul. Okay, they were not nice to him. Read First Corinthians. Like they're 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 con- they they're not nice. Like they look at him, they're like, oh, you're not a good preacher. You really are just a terrible kind of preacher. Like you're just really boring. You make us fall asleep. We don't like you. Can you just leave? We'd rather have these other guys. And, and Paul is still driving himself to them in a way that, yeah, I, you need to understand that Jesus is the only way you can be reconciled with God. He's going to them even though they don't like him. He's compelled. He's controlled by the love of Jesus. That's why he says things like, it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Like, it's not me. It's all him. That's why he says things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. How do you imagine getting to that place? Like, if I'm going to live, it's Christ. That's all it is. That's what my life is all about. Nothing else. To live is Christ. But to die, that would even be better. Like most of us, we probably fear death, right? If we were really to admit it. But for him, it's like, hey, I'm either going to be here serving Jesus or I'm going to be there with Jesus. All, all, that's all that matters. It don't matter. Like I'm all good to live as Christ, to die as gain. So that's where he was at. That's where he got to in his life. And then he says this in verse 16. He says, from now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, Yet now we no longer know him in this way. Uh, Paul was someone, he used to be named Saul. And, and he used to be, at the early stages of the church, he used to be one of the biggest enemies of the church. He had a reputation that when he finally uh, followed Jesus and was part of the church, people were scared of him because they heard about what he did. He was a part of murder, stoning. He was a part of uh, getting people in prison just for worshiping Jesus because he was a Jew and a righteous Jew and he saw Jesus as a problem. But then Jesus revealed himself to him and Paul ended up having his name changed to Paul from Saul. And now he is seeing people in a new way, in a new way. He says, I don't look at people in a worldly way anymore. Like the, the, way, the measuring sticks of the world, I don't buy into that. I don't, I don't roll that way anymore because I know that Jesus died for all. There is no one on this earth who is good enough to not be included in the death of Jesus. Which that's good news for them, but it's also an accusation on us in the fact that we're sinners. And so for him, like, and, and we, 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 we know what it means to know someone from a worldly perspective or judge someone from a worldly perspective. Think about this. Uh, we all have like either celebrities, like actors, actresses, uh, people, you know, we read about, we would love to meet athletes. Uh, you know, we would just, if we saw them at the mall, Okay, you're walking around Glenbrook. And if you don't go to Glenbrook, just imagine you're there anyway. Uh, and you're walking around and you see this person that you would love to meet. And what would you do? You'd freak out. You'd gawk at them. You'd try and meet them. You'd get, get something signed by them. Like we do that as people. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe you're above that. That's fine. Uh, but we all look at people for, in a worldly way. And that's just an example of that where we look at their skills and their, their ambition and their accomplishments, and we're like, man, they are so, they're so good. Like, look at them. They're so great. 
And we look at them over there and we were like, no, like that. They really just can't get out of their own way. And, 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 and we judge people based on these measuring sticks, these weights. And Paul's saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing that anymore. I don't look at you in the way where I'm just looking at your outward appearance and, and the things that you've accomplished or not accomplished or the things you struggle with or don't struggle with. I'm not looking at you in that, in that way anymore. I see you as someone who needs Jesus. That's it. Like, I see you as someone who needs Jesus. You are desperately in need of Jesus and radically loved by the one who is named Jesus of Nazareth. That is who you are. And so that, my friends, is why I get up in the morning. That's why I, why I go and plant churches. That's why I keep ministering to people who don't like me because I'm about Jesus, not about you. I want you to know him. I don't want you to know me and, because I don't have any power. He's the one with the power. I want you to know him. And so all his life, he's, he's looking at now, he's looking at these people as someone in the same need as he needs, and that is in need of a life-changing relationship with Jesus. That's, that's what people need, and that's what he saw them as. And, and, and it can be easy to forget that. Like, it can be easy to just get comfortable with, with like, putting people on pedestals or, or diminishing people's worth. It can be easy to do that. Why? Because I don't know about you, but... Like, I annoy myself. So, of course, like, I'm going to be annoyed by other people. You're going to be annoyed by other people. You annoy yourself, right? Yeah. Like, you can't get away from yourself. You're always there. But we're not going to look at ourselves in that. We have to be reminded that we're supposed to look at people through the lens of Jesus. And that means loving them unconditionally, sacrificially, with compassion and understanding that they've got a mess just like I've got a mess and I've got to just keep going with it. I got to keep loving them. I, I just, I'm compelled, I'm controlled. Like I can't do anything else. And, and that's, that's where Paul was and hopefully we're on the way there too. Uh, verse 17, he says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he drops this, this awesome truth bomb on us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see, look, Check this out. The new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. There's a lot there, but I'm going to give you a picture to, to frame it. Um, the, last, the last month or so, I've driven through New Haven a couple of times. And uh, my, my sister lives in New Haven, uh, so we, we went and visited her there, and I, I experienced this when I was, we were on our way. And then we went to Georgetown Bowl uh, like last week or so, and we drove through New Haven to get there. And every time, which by the way, <laughs> uh, I did not do well at bowling. Like, I pride myself on being able to win. And, and this is this bad, okay? This is how messed up I am. Uh, I, you know, you can put the names on the screen, like who you, like you can put your name or you can put a nickname or something funny, right? I put winner for me. <laughs> and I lost. God's humbling me every moment. <laughs> I lost. Uh, but so we were on our way to Georgetown Bowl and we driving by New Haven. And, and uh, earlier in the week, like a week before that, we were, we were actually in New Haven visiting my sister. And every time I go through New Haven, it seems like I drive by a junkyard. And, and, and so I'm driving by this junkyard. Every time I think of a junkyard, like I start thinking about stuff. Because, uh, you know, I, I preach and, like, you know, you don't get these ideas just by, like, never thinking about it. So, there's all, like, everything's a sermon illustration. So just beware when you have conversations with me, okay? <laughs> uh, so, so, I was driving by the, the junkyard and, 
it made me think, because like a junkyard is the place where you're broke down uh, dead kind of car goes, right? Like you don't usually put your brand new uh, car that you love in the junkyard. It just doesn't happen. You take the car that is just, it's done. You can't use it anymore. That's where it goes. You don't even go there. The tow truck takes it there. Uh, but I don't know about you, but like there's other, there's people, uh, and, and I've been those people, especially when we were racing and stuff, we'd go to the junkyard and, and pick out the parts from those cars because every car that's broken still has some parts that will work. Okay, so we go back and we, we pick out some parts and we can then put it in our car and it works just great. It works just fine. But that made me think. It made me think about this. That if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. I don't know about you. I'm just to be honest with you about things I do in my life. Um, if we think about it in this sense, my old life, who I used to be, was broke down, totaled, couldn't even take it anywhere. They took it to the, to the junkyard and it's sitting there. But, but when things happen in my life, when, when things, I don't know how to, you know, you, you got to get used to this whole like new life in Jesus. It's, it takes a whole lifetime to get used to. And by the time you think you got it figured out, you're reminded that you don't. And then hopefully, you know, you, you meet Jesus soon after that, right? Um, but, but this is a journey. This is just a stretching. We don't, we don't, have all the answers for what it looks like, but we're struggling, we're trying, we're stretching. Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, like work it out. It takes work to get used to this new life. But for me, I can take the easy route and I can go back to the junkyard. I can find my old self and then I can go pick out parts that I think work, that have worked in the past, didn't work well, didn't work in a way that honored God, but I can go back to those things. I can go back, like when I'm dealing with a conflict, I can go back to the old self, old Brandon, and say, hey, how did you figure this out? How did you deal with this conflict? It's not pretty. It's not good, but I can go there because it's familiar, and I can find it. I know where it is. Uh, when I go back to my old self for advice, like, hey, what would you do in this situation? Not a good idea. Not a good idea, but I, tend to, I can go back there. I can go back, I'm sure you can too, your old self, the old way of life. When, when a friend lets me down, I go back to those past hurts that I experienced before Jesus of people abandoning me and even after Jesus of, of people who, who just left me, like the best friend, gone. And I can go back to that pain. I can get comfortable in it. And, and, and I can just go back to that old self. How did you deal with it? It wasn't pretty. It wasn't good. I can keep going back to that. When, when I walk through pain, I can ask that old self. I can go and get that part and say, here's how I should probably not do this, but this is how I'm gonna do it. I don't know about you, but pain is a tricky thing because when you, get, when you have pain, sometimes you can be identified by it. That can become a part of your identity. It can be attached to you and you can never leave it because I'm this person. I'm a label like this. this is, I'm a person who didn't have this or I'm a person who, who was hurt by this person and we can just rest in that being a part of my identity and that's what I can go and back go, go do. I can go get that peace in my old self and attach it to myself and not let it go. Uh, it's not just pain though. I can, I can ask myself, how's the future going to turn out? I can be a cynic, especially before Jesus. I can be a cynic. I'm a dreamer, but I can be a cynic in the same way of a dreamer would be good, like good with a future that's, that's bright. What is it going to look like? No, I can, I can start to ignore the new life that Jesus has given me. And I can go back to the things I know, the things that are easy, because I don't know about you, it's usually easier to sin than it is to live for Jesus. Yeah? We can be real in here. Usually easy. That's why we struggle with it so bad. It's like the easy button. 
And then, ah, oh, did it again. You saw, so the, the new life then requires us to work this stuff out, to figure out what this new thing looks like, not to go back to the old thing and then take that part and I know it works, so I'm just going to attach it. It, it, it it's, it's different. It takes intentionality. My friend, it's time we begin seeing ourselves as we really are. In Christ, we are a new creation with a new direction, a new de- destination, and a new foundation. That's what we are. That's who we are as Jesus followers. Paul says, Paul calls us saints, y'all. Paul calls us saints. Not just Saint, Saint Teresa or Saint Mary or Saint Joe. Like, we, we are called saints in Scripture. That's biblical. But, but it's only because of Jesus, not because of anything you did or I did. Uh, where we used to live in fear, we can live in faith. Where we used to live in anger, we can live in love. When we used to live in dread, we can live in hope. That's the change that we can experience, but that new life is difficult. It takes some getting used to. Why? Not because, it, not because of anything we've done, we can live in that. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done to us, for us, and what he wants to do through us. Verse 18, again, he says this, everything is from God. This is not anything we did. Your salvation is not dependent on you. It's dependent on Jesus. And guess what? He's trustworthy and you take it to the bank. He's going to deliver it to be true. You, you can't do anything to save you. I can't do anything to save you. Everything is from God. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconcilia- reconciliation to us. This is, this is really cool. Um, if you've read Romans, you, you may have heard the word justification, or you've been in church for a little while. Justification gives you a picture. It's supposed to bring out a picture. Um, it's an illustration, really. Justification is like, all right, we're going to just transform. <sighs> Scene change. We're in a courtroom, okay? It just happened. We're here, okay? And, and we're all sitting in our own defendant table, defendant seat, because we're the defendant. There has been an accusation raised against us. And guess what? We know deep down we're guilty. Without a shadow of a doubt, we've done it. We've sinned against the holy God. And guess what the punishment for that is? Nothing less than eternal punishment. That's it. That's all she wrote. Let's get the sentence. Let's get on with it. It's not good news. But in this picture of justification, the, the judge looks at us. And he says, you are guilty. You're guilty. But Jesus is going to take your place. And because of that, no penalty for you. No penalty. No penalty for you. You don't have to, no. No penalty for you. You are good. We are good. And you get to walk out that door a free person as if you had never sinned. Covered for the future too. That's some good news. But reconciliation takes it a step further. When Paul uses reconciliation, it's like this. The same scene, same situation. You've just been declared uh, no penalty for you. You're not innocent, you're guilty, but you're not getting the penalty for it. And the judge looks at you and he sees you as the spiritual orphan you are. The person in desperate need of not just salvation, but reconciliation, but, but something more than that, a relational dynamic, a relational connection with him. And he says, hey, before you leave, I want to make sure you know you're invited. I want you to come to my house tonight. I want to have you over for dinner. I want you to 
come hang out with me. The judge that you've wronged, he's the one that you've wronged. And he says, he, he, I want you to come over. And so you go over there. You go over to his house. It's a beautiful house. It's a wonderful house. And in the midst of your dinner, which is a wonderful dinner, amazing steak, might have even added bacon to it just because, you know, just because he loves you that much. And uh, he says, hey, um, I've, I've enjoyed myself so much. I'm so glad we did this. I know, like, you, you've wronged me so much, but guess what? I love you so much more, so much more. And guess what? Hey, um, I know you're an orphan and all, and um, I would like to adopt you into my family. Like, I'd like you to be in my family. I would like to be your father. I would like to love you every day, not just in this moment. I would like to be with you every single day. See, reconciliation is uh, when you become, when you were an enemy of God and you then become a child of God. You just think about the difference. And it's not anything you did. It's God did all of it. Make us from an enemy to a child. Every time we sin against him, we're an enemy and yet his grace is greater, and so we are children through Jesus and through what he did for us. So reconciliation, uh, you know, this is what Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. Reconciliation is God saying, yes, you've wronged me. Yes, you deserve death. Yes, you deserve punishment. But because of what Jesus did, you and I have been reconciled. I want you in my family. I'm here for you, even though you've always been against me. And he goes on in verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. That's their, that's their message as ambassadors. You see, for, for, for Paul, his controlling factor in life went from uh, getting rid of the Christians to now trying to make sure everyone knows that there is hope in Jesus. The love of Christ was controlling him. And what I think God wants us to see today is that the controlling factors that we've been plagued by all our lives, we can get rid of them and then be controlled by the love of Jesus just like Paul was. He says, no longer do you need to be controlled by, the, by approval. Like you just seek after that all the day of your life, every single time. You're trying to find the approval of your parents or, or, or someone else, your boss. You don't have to be controlled by that anymore. You don't have to do things to do that. You, can, you don't have to be controlled by success. You don't have to be controlled by pride, which can also manifest it in self and in, in insecurities. Like if you're always insecure, that's the problem of pride. You don't have to be controlled by that anymore. You don't have to be controlled by people's opinions of you. You don't have to be controlled by your past experiences. Your past doesn't hold you anymore because Jesus has let you free from that. You don't have to be controlled by fear. You don't have to be controlled by sin. Because there was, all, there was a one, once, one time, maybe it's still here today, where we were in bondage to sin. But Jesus has freed us from that. When we used to be God's enemies, now we are not only his children, but now we get to be his representatives to a world that so desperately needs what we have that's a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Get this, God's hiring process, not something you want to repeat if you got a business. Think about this. Uh, if, if you own a, just put yourself in business owner's shoes. If you're already there, then good. You already know this. Uh, it, let's say that there's someone who's just, they are always just on you and, and being just disrespectful to you. 
just talking bad about your company on, on social media, on the internet, to you in person. Like they just don't like you, they don't like what you do. They, they just don't care. And then it would be as if you decided to hire that person. You ain't gonna do that, are you? You see, God's reconciling power is far greater than ours. And so what that means is while we used to be enemies of God, I used to badmouth the church all the time. And guess look where I am. That, that's just only God, not me. Right? All that preacher wanted was your money. That's not true, okay? Like, it's not true. So it looks like taking your worst enemy and then making them your employee of the month and your child. It's all a multifaceted, beautiful relationship that we have with God. See, our deliverance is all his doing. Verse 21, it says this. He made the one who did not know sin, Jesus didn't even know it, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus took our place. He took our place. He's the substitute. He's the one who took our place on the cross. He's the gracious judge. He's the one who says no penalty for you. Jesus is the merciful king. He grants us forgiveness when we never deserve it. He's the sprinting father. He's the one who ran after us when we didn't even love ourselves and embraced us when we didn't even think we deserved it because we don't. But he's the one who came after you. He pursues you and welcomes you into his family. This passage, I believe, speaks on two things that we need to know Jesus and we need to make Jesus known. We need to know Jesus and we need to make Jesus known because if we are at the point where we can see ourselves with who we really are, a person in desperate need of Jesus, and we can see everyone else as they really are, a person, people who desperately need Jesus, then that will give us a lens, a motivation, a controlling factor in our lives where we can go and be on mission for him in the way God is calling us. But it takes us to see that, to know Jesus and to make him known. Our mission is to bring people to Jesus. See, none of us are the savior. You're not gonna fix your family member. You're not gonna fix your friend. You're not even gonna fix yourself. I'm not gonna fix myself. And so we need to get, to get everyone to the person who can actually clean up their messes. Jesus. You're not gonna fix them. I'm not going to fix them. And we need to recognize that. We are all called to be people who are, in every opportunity we have, to be pointing people to the one who can actually change them, who can fix their most fundamental problem, and that is sin. See, Paul began to see people in this way, and that drove him to take seriously his role as an ambassador for Christ. And all of us, no matter our vocation, no matter what we do for a living, we're all called to be ambassadors for Jesus because Jesus' people lead people to Jesus. Jesus' people lead people to Jesus. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. Uh, we, we need to be like the friends who had a paralyzed friend. Uh, the group of, group of guys that they had a friend who couldn't walk, couldn't, couldn't go anywhere, and they, they heard that Jesus was in, uh, in, the, in town, in their community. They heard that Jesus was around. And so they decided to get this guy on a mat that he was used to sitting on and they carried him to the house. They heard it from, from a distance where it was because it was a big commotion. And they got him to the house because they wanted their friend to see Jesus because they knew that what was plaguing their friend was only gonna be possible to be healed by Jesus. Not because they could do it, they couldn't. They knew it. They needed to get him to Jesus. And yet, when they got to the house, the house was full. It was standing room only. The building code, it was way beyond that. 
Okay, there was no moving. They were not getting their friend to Jesus. And so they didn't stop. They didn't say, oh, we'll try next day, next time. We'll maybe look for a better opportunity. Maybe this isn't the moment for our friend to be healed. Maybe this isn't God's plan. No, they went and got up on the roof somehow. They went up on the roof and somehow they started digging a hole on this guy's roof. And you can imagine the scene. Jesus is in the middle of this room. He's teaching the crowd. And then this guy who's it's at his house, he starts seeing debris falling from the ceiling. He gets his homeowner's insurance agent on the phone. He's like, hey, is this covered? Because we're about to be covered by my roof. And, and this is all going on. And Jesus knows what's happening. And their friends, he just digs and digs and digs enough to get a grown man through the roof. And then they had the engineering capabilities of somehow. They had some good brains with that group of people. And they got him lowered right in front of Jesus. This paralyzed man. You can imagine this moment for all the people who were there. They thought something was going to happen. Well, man, it's happening. This paralyzed man is being lowered right in front of Jesus as Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom of God, about what he is calling them to. And Jesus looks down at this man right in front of him and says, friend, and I get this, his friends were wanting him to be healed of his, para, of his situation, of his physical paralyzed. Like he didn't want him, they didn't want him to be paralyzed anymore. And Jesus looks at this man in the midst of all these people watching him and says, friend, your sins are forgiven. That's not what they expected. That's not what they thought was going to happen. And then the Pharisees who are at this place, because they followed Jesus around, they were trying to make sure they could catch Jesus and get rid of Jesus because he had a big following. The Pharisees thought to themselves, they didn't even say it. They didn't even give a look. They just thought it. This man is blasphemous because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, Look at, looks at them and says, oh, really? This is Brandon's translation, by the way. You think that was impressive? Because you don't really know, right? If you say, hey, your sins are forgiven, do you really know? If Jesus says that you do, but they didn't know that, okay, let me show you something you can see. Friend, go ahead and get up, grab your mat, and go home. Well, that's kind of disingenuous, except the fact that in that moment he got strength in his legs and he got up off of his mat. He picked up his mat, folded it up, and walked away praising God all the way home. See, Jesus is the one that we need to get people to because Jesus is the only one who can actually deal with the things that plague us, deal with our sin, deal with our, 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 our struggles in life. They knew. Those friends, those are some good friends, y'all. If you've got some friends who will drive you to Jesus every time something's paralyzing you, every time something's plaguing you, those are some friends to have around because they're going to get you to Jesus and that's who you need to be with. And so, friends, that's what we're called to do as the church. Jesus people lead people to Jesus. That's what we're called to do because we know, because we see them as they really are. We see ourselves as we really are. They have no hope apart from him. No hope. But with him, they have hope everlasting. It's an everlasting stream. It never dries up the hope we have in Jesus. So the question is, who are you leading to Jesus? Who will you lead to Jesus? It doesn't have to be an intimidating thing. You can just be honest. What has your experience with Jesus been? Share that with them. Because Jesus people lead people to Jesus. 
That's what we're called to do. That's who we are. We are ambassadors for Jesus. If all was to our faith was, faith was just being saved, then we'd be in heaven with God right now. But he's got us a mission to do, to lead people to Jesus, because we all know everyone needs him. Let's pray.